So let's read this morning from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 18. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it tells us all that we need to know for life and godliness all we need to know to be saved from our sins, and that it is a sure word. So we thank you for it and ask that this day you would open our eyes to understand your word better and let your word grip our souls and let us not be only hearers of the word, but doers of it. And to that end, give us your Holy Spirit for me to preach and for us all to hear that Christ would be glorified in what is said here and in the way it is received here and the way that we live as a result of the things we hear today. And we ask it in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen. As we've seen, John has been warning in his letter so far in these first couple of chapters about some dangers that the people whom he is addressing face. And they face in particular the dangers posed by these false teachers who have been troubling them. But there's a larger danger than just the false teachers. Perhaps above all, there is the devil himself. Look with me over at near the end of this epistle, 1 John 5 and verse 19. John says there, we know that we, that is believers, the Christians that he is addressing, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Or literally it is the whole world, excuse me, the whole world is in the hand of the wicked one. The devil is their greater danger, we could say, than just these false teachers. But the reality is that the devil has, and the devil uses instruments to do his evil work. And certainly these false teachers are among those instruments, like we read in verse 18 of chapter 2, that they are um, antichrists. That's how wicked they are. And that's how potentially dangerous they are. And of course, the devil, as well, as it says in 1 John 5, 19, has the whole world in his hand, and to some degree, under his authority and under his sway. 
He has instruments. He uses instruments. So bearing that in mind, let's look at our text, which is simply verses 15, 16, and 17 of 1 John 2. And we'll approach it by noticing, first of all, a command, and then three reasons for that command. The command is right in the first part of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the command. And we'll ask two questions regarding this command this morning. The first one is, what is the world? And I'll give you a couple of definitions of the world from a couple of different commentators. One wrote, the world here is fallen humanity that is hostile to God. Another wrote that the world is mankind in organized rebellion against God. It makes you think of Psalm 2, verse 2, where it says, The kings of the earth set themselves against God. The rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's an organized rebellion of the entire unbelieving world against God, however much they are conscious of it or not. In other words, there are some worldlings that if you said, you realize, don't you, that you are in rebellion against God, they would honestly answer you, no, I didn't realize that. In fact, they would probably even say, I don't frankly even think there is such a thing as a God. But this is the reality about the world. Fallen humanity, hostile to God. We could say that the world here is the whole world system as it is ruled by the evil one, as we just read in 1 John 5, 19. So to explain and to understand John's perspective about who and what the world is, it's not the same perspective that the people had who were troubling the Christians in the city of Colossae as we went through the book of Colossians. You may remember in in, uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul disagreed with some of those false teachers. They had a list of things that constituted what the world was that they should stay away from. And it was all just a list of things that they either would touch or handle or not touch and handle. Colossians 2 in verse 21. And that is not John's perspective here when he talks about the world. It's not the same perspective that some Christians even have in our day. Here is a list of things you don't do and places you don't go. You don't ever drink alcoholic beverages. You don't go to movie theaters. You don't ever smoke a cigarette. You don't ever let your hair get down uh, below the middle of your ear, etc., etc. That's the world. And if you avoid those things, you're okay. That's not John's perspective. Let's turn back just to see a more scriptural understanding of this to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. Here Paul is writing to Timothy about how he will teach the people in the city of Ephesus where he is at this time. And he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, 
nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. So here's Paul telling Timothy how to teach the rich people in the congregation. And you notice that he does not say, tell them to get rid of their riches. He doesn't say what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, tell them to sell everything they have and give it away to the poor. In fact, he just says, don't let them trust in those things and don't be haughty about it. And that ties in very well with what John says, as we'll see. But he also says that God gives them those things richly so that they can enjoy them and so that they can do good. In other words, they're going to be in a position because of their wealth to give to people who need it more than most Christians are able to do. So a biblical view is this. If you really enjoy a nice steak and a glass of wine, do it. Because God has given you those things richly to enjoy and enjoy them with a good conscience. Even if you're aware that maybe most people in the world can't enjoy that. I love the fact that we can travel places for relatively cheap. Jump in our cars and drive hundreds of miles and go visit people that we otherwise wouldn't be able to visit. Or get on a plane and go visit people far away like my wife is doing right now, using, even though we're using up fossil fuels. And God says, enjoy those realities. I have pieces of clothing that I've come to really enjoy over the years. Most of them I hardly wear anymore, but there were things I bought when I lived in Minnesota that really preserved me from discomfort when I went out in the winter some of them I've only put on a couple of times since I've been living here in New Jersey. But when I do, I love it. And I'm thankful to God for such things. As we'll see, John's point goes deeper than just putting a label on things. This is the world or that is the world. Now don't get me wrong. There are things that we can look at and just label the world. Fornication is the world, right? Pornography is the world. Clubbing, in the sense that it means immorality and drunkenness and just an overall vile setting, that's the world. Immodesty and ostentation in dress is the world. Materialism, not necessarily all material, but materialism is the world. Getting things for the sake of having them. Because the new one is out. I have to have it. Or loving those things and living for them. That is the world. These are all things that are sinful in themselves. So the world, that's what it is to John. It's this whole world system. It's not just select things in this world but then the second question is this, what is it to love the world? One translation, the New English Bible, is a good interpretive translation. It's not a literal translation, but it's a good interpretive translation. It says in John 2.15, first part of the verse, Do not set your hearts on the godless world or anything in it. 
like we saw in 1 Timothy 6. You may enjoy the things in this world, the stake, the ability to travel, and so on. But don't love those things in the sense of setting your heart on them. Don't allow yourself to become addicted to those things so that if they're ever removed from you, because let's say you get put in jail for your faith or something like that, or you grow old and can't enjoy them the way you used to, that you start whining and pining because of that. Don't serve those things, especially to the neglect of other more important duties in your life. We read it there in 1 Timothy 6. Let those rich Christians do good with the riches they have, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. If all the rich man does is enjoy his stake and enjoy his automobiles and enjoy his luxuries to the neglect of doing good with God's good gifts to him. That is worldliness. It's real worldliness. We must not give our affection to the world. We must not give our allegiance to the world. We must not give our devotion to the world or to the things in the world. But we must give them to God alone. As Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot love God and mammon. So when John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he's telling us, in part at least, that we need to have the attitude and we need to have the bearing as we go through this world of the pilgrims in Vanity Fair, if you're familiar with Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that allegory. We need to be very careful. We need to be watchful. We should not have the attitude that we see in Colossians 2. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. But we must not set our hearts on the things of this world. And we must be very careful about everything in the world that we use and that we do set our hands upon. We need to be, to use another illustration, like soldiers in enemy territory. Jesus said that to his disciples, you are not of the world. And he said, you have to be in the world, but not of the world. You have to be in the world, but you can't love the world. We're like soldiers in enemy territory. But we have to remember, like a proper soldier would, that this enemy territory that we in has people in it that we must love. And God's our example there, right? He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for them. And we need to remember that there are things in this world that we may enjoy. And we could even say, like we see in 1 Timothy 6, we even should enjoy. Because God has given us those things so that we might enjoy them. So there's a command, do not love the world. And then third, secondly, John gives three reasons for his commandment. Three reasons. He doesn't say in all these reasons that the world is dangerous. We could say it's implied. 
He doesn't argue that. That's not his point. Much of Scripture does. The hymn we sang just before I got up to preach was screaming that in a sense. The world is dangerous. Be careful. Scripture argues that way. Think of what it says in Proverbs 7 about the immoral woman. It says, The immoral woman has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. The world is dangerous. But let's look at what John says and gives reasons about why we should not love the world. Here's his first point. First reason is this. If you love the world, you don't love God. You don't know God. It's the last part of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we could say this is the most important of the reasons John gives here for not loving the world. And it falls right in with what we've seen John's emphasis has been here in this epistle so far. His emphasis has been to give these tests. One man wrote a commentary over a hundred years ago, I think it was, Uh, And it was called The Tests of Life. And that's what you see in John. He's throughout the book. He said, well, if you do this, you're not a Christian. You don't love God. You don't know God. And we could say that about loving the world. And that's what John says here. If someone loves the world, he doesn't love God. Or take it the other way if you want. He's not loved and known by God. But the point is, he neither loves nor knows God. He's not a Christian. And this reason has an explanation. That's what, verse, that's what we see in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He says, here's why I say you're not a Christian if you're a lover of this world, because these things are incompatible. Loving God and loving the world, just like Jesus said, you can't have two masters. You can't love the world because it's from a hostile, opposing, enemy realm, if you will. And that's his first part of his argument here. And the first part of verse 16 and the last part of it. Let's read it without the um, hyphenated or, or the section that's separated there. For all that is in the world, go to the end now, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So we know that the world is hostile to God because of its origin, if you will. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Everything that can be called the world in the sense John uses it, he says it's not from God. Now, he's obviously here not talking about the world as created, because as created, the world, the earth, all the people in it, all the things in it, in that sense, they are from God. But that's not his point. He's saying everything that is the world in the sense of this world system as it is opposed to God. That's what his sights are on. It made me think of, as an illustration, if you're familiar with another allegory, the um, Lord of the Rings, it made me think of the orcs. The orcs came from a bad place. They came from... Sauron's um, orc factory, for lack of a better word, in um, Mordor. So they came from a bad place, 
And therefore, they were bad creatures. Listen to John 8, verses 44 and 47, because this is how John is looking at the world here. And it was, all, it was true of every one of us Christians at one time. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8.44, and then John 8.47 says, He who is of God... So you're not just of the devil, not anymore. If you're born again by God's Spirit, you are of God. He who is of God hears God's words, and therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. If you love the world, you don't know God. One, because the world you love is not of God. It's of the world, and the world is opposed to God. And then secondly... If you love the world, you don't know God and you don't love God. And we can say that's true because of the world's moral character. And that's the middle part of the verse here. For all that is in the world. And then what he does is he singles out three very bad elements of the world. This evil system that is opposed to God. And here are the three things he singles out. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What are these things? And I can only be brief. The lust of the flesh is sinful desires, our sinful desires, unbelievers' sinful desires, and to our grief, even saints' remaining sinful desires. Are you saying there's some of the world in me, pastor? I'm a Christian. Yes. And you know it. If you're a Christian, you know it. There's no debate. The sinful desires within us, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that war against our souls. That's the lust of the flesh. Desires especially for pleasure. Like sex, riches, food, drink, regardless of the cost. And regardless of how much we need to break through the bounds that God has set for us to get our filthy paws on them. That's just saying it straight. That's the lust of the flesh. That is the world. So don't think as a Christian that you set up your list of ten things you'll never do, and therefore you are like a person who lives in a high-walled compound that has separated yourself from the world. You will never get away from the world in this life because it starts with the lust of the flesh, and you need to look at it this way, the lust of your flesh. And then there's the lust of the eyes. And the point here is simply this, that the eyes are often the medium the gateway of temptation for the lust of the flesh. So he's not just saying three separate categories here that cover everything that is called the world. No, he just singles out three things that everybody battles with, and there's overlap. 
Your eyes are often the way that the lust of the flesh gets aroused. So that if you went around with blinders on, a blindfold, and just had somebody lead you, you would be spared from the arousing of a lot of lusts in this life. Think of Eve in the garden. She saw that it was a tree that was good for food. Think of Achan, who took the forbidden items from the city of Jericho. And when he was asked, why did you do that, Achan? Why did you bring this terrible judgment upon your people, Israel. He said, well, it was when I saw among the spoils a garment from Babylon. In other words, if he hadn't seen it there, he would never have had in his mind to go looking through the rubble of the walls of Jericho. Or think of David. Because he wasn't where he should have been in the spring of the year, away with the army in battle, he saw something, someone, from the roof of his home. The lust of the eyes. And then there's the pride of life, which I'll just call it the tendency to boast about all that we have and all that we are. Well, I have all this. You don't come out and say that, but you think that way. And I am all this. In other words, I have these gifts that a lot of people just don't have. And you don't talk like that. You don't go around saying, I am somebody, but you think that. And probably there are a number of unbelievers sitting here who do talk that way and think that way and don't think anything of it. But you do that and you think about those things without reference to God who gave it all to you. Any good gift you have, it came from God. Anything you are, any abilities you have, they came from God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And John's message is this. If you are not restraining these things in your life, if instead, especially, you are indulging them, his judgment is this. You don't know God. And he just puts it in these simple words. Many of John's words are just monosyllabic words. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Three reasons not to love the world. The first is, if you love the world, you don't know God. The second reason is this. It's in the first part of verse 17. <clears throat> the world is passing away. It says, the world, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. One day soon, the world will be destroyed. Not just in a physical sense, but everything in the world and everyone in the world who is opposed to God. 
It says in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, the way of the Lord, excuse me, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It's something that's looming. Like the New Testament says, the time is short. In fact, the Old Testament says the time is short. That day is coming. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It's pointing to a specific day and time in the future when Jesus Christ will come on the clouds and that will be the end of this world, including all the things that are sources of sin for us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We can thankfully say our sinful remains will be burned up, never to appear again. Thanks be to God. So there's that day coming, but John doesn't just say that there's a day coming. He says the world is presently passing away. So it's kind of like all of us. We will die. There will be a day, sometime in the future, unless you're alive when Christ comes, that you will die. You will breathe your last breath and you will be put into the ground. But we can also say this about every one of us. There's a day when we will die, but there's also this reality that we are now already dying. Every one of us, young as you are, wrinkle-free as your skin is right now, strong as your muscles are, you're dying. No one will find the fountain of youth, not in this sin-cursed world. You're dying. We're all dying. So John's point is this. The Christian knows that the writing is on the wall. This world is passing away. And that passing away has already begun. And so our perspective should never be what used to, I, I used to see on bumper stickers, that he who dies with the most toys wins. No, he who dies with the most toys does not win. Why? Because the world is passing away and everything in it. Maybe if you could keep all the toys you accumulated in this life, you could say you win but you can't. And so there's no winning in that regard. If you simply choose in your life to please yourself and not to please God, as it says in the last part of this verse, but he who does the will of God abides forever, you will lose everything. You will lose the ability to enjoy that steak or that glass of wine or that fall trip to New England or whatever it is. You will lose every one of those things. There will be no pleasant things. It'll be like the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 for you. That you will wish you just had one drop of water that someone could come and touch your tongue with it. But you won't have that. They'll all be gone. Jesus says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's how you should think of everything you get in this life. 
As you're a young person, you're thinking about going to college, what you're going to study in college, what job you're going to have after you get out, what kind of a home you're going to buy, what kind of a boat you're going to have, where you're going to live, how wonderful it'll be when you have your dream home and your husband or your wife and those three little kids that you always plan to have and however great those kids are, it's passing away. So even if God gives you every one of those things, it'll be a mist that'll be here one day and gone the next. Solomon wrote, Proverbs 23, verse 5, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. I know some people have been rich, and they've been rich for a really long time. Well, if they've been rich for a really long time, they're not that far from death then, are they? They're going to fly, even if they don't fly during this earthly life. The world is passing away. Second reason not to love the world. Third reason is in the last part of verse 17. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The only way you're going to abide forever is not by getting all that you can, like the, the man in Luke 12 with the parable of the, I can't remember the, the name of that parable now, the parable of um, the rich man or something. He had all the barns, built new barns so he could have, now I'm safe, he said. It's like my 401k has reached this point and now I'm safe. And then that night God demanded his life of him. You can follow your lusts, your desires, your feelings, and let those things be the rule you live by. You can follow the dictates of the world, the temptations of the world, the siren song of the world. It is so sweet and pretty sounding. So many people in this world are like lemmings going after the world. You can follow that or... You can follow God and follow God's will, what his word says, which of course here is don't love the world. And that, following God and following God's will, is the only way to life. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Some of these texts I've read today are some of the most important texts for us as God's people and for everybody in this world. Because this is true about everyone. You're either on the broad road that leads to hell or you're on the narrow way. And those on the narrow way are those who don't love the world. And according to God's wisdom, we need to be kept on that way by the warnings of God's word. And here are some of them. Do not love the world. Remember that riches will fly away. Remember that if you desire to save your life, you're going to lose it. That even if you gain the whole world, you'll end up losing your soul if your heart is set on this world. There was a, a preacher in the 4th century 
the relatively early church named Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you pronounce it. And he preached in Constantinople, and it was a very worldly city. And he was preaching a sermon that I read many years ago, but it stuck with me. Sermon, on, I think it was on the Tenth Commandment. Regardless of whether it was on the Tenth Commandment or some other text, his main message was preaching against the sin of covetousness. Loving this world. And what he said to the people was this, after he laid out the text and what it teaches and so on. And then he said, I wish I could follow you into the marketplace every day of the week. Why did he say that? He says, because I can tell you all these things on Sunday, but the battle is fought not when you're sitting in the church pew. It's fought when you are walking through the marketplace and you start setting your eyes on... And that's what he was saying. I wish I could follow you there and say to you there, don't love the world. And as a preacher, I wish I could convince you of these realities in a way that you have not been convinced of them before this moment. I say that to the adults who know to some degree, whether you're a Christian or not, the alluring power and the ensnaring power of this world, and especially to Christians, whether you're young or old. I wish I could convince you that these truths should play a greater role in your life. What do I mean? I mean, as you sit and watch stuff on your TV set, or maybe in a movie theater, or on your computer screen, so-called entertainment, I wish I could really convince you of these things that we've seen today. I wish I could convince you as you make decisions about your life, how you will live it, where you will live it when you come to those kinds of significant decisions. I wish I could convince you so that you'll remember them as you contemplate purchases, whether you are strolling through the mall or whether you are scrolling and clicking on your computer. I wish I could convince you so that they will stick with you as you are reading things and watching things and listening to things about COVID-19 or about racism or whatever the things are that keep you constantly, well, I'm just doing it so I know what's going on in the world. Yes, I know. But are you aware that it is the world? Unless it's expounding the Word of God to you and helping to explain to you how the Word of God applies to your life. And I wish I could convince you young people as well. And I, not just young people, but also every unbeliever sitting here today. I wish I could convince you that what Scripture says about the world is true. It's one of the things that people, I think, most tend to doubt. You might not even be a Christian, but you say, I believe God made the world. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He's going to come again and He's going to judge all the living and the dead. But this, in all my years as a pastor, I don't know if there's any one thing that has frustrated me more than that this warning, do not love the world, has so often fallen, it seems, 
on deaf ears when I've preached it. Or when other pastors have preached it. And I've heard their griefs about this point as well. I remember being in a conversation on a Sunday night several years ago, maybe 15 years ago. We're at the house of another family in our church, and the husband of that family, the man of the house, said, we were talking about the subject, why do so many young people who have grown up in Christian homes, why do so many of them, including those who have even confessed to be believers in Jesus Christ, why do they turn away from those professions Why do they turn away from the God of their fathers? Why do they turn away from the Word of God? Why does that happen? Why does that happen so commonly? And I don't know that it necessarily happens a lot more in our generation than it has happened in past generations. It just seems like it when it's happening in our houses. But his answer was this. One of his answers was this. He says, well... Jesus said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, we all, meaning here in the 21st century in the United States of America, he said, we all are rich. And we are. Even if you think of yourself as lower middle class, you compare yourself to the history of the world, and all the rest of the world? You compare yourself to first century Palestine? You are rich. And I don't even feel any qualms about saying that as I look you in the face. And frankly, the people who qualify in our country as poor, I've read what qualifies them. They are rich. And I think that's a good observation. It was hard It was hard for people to not succumb to the pressures and the temptations of the world in the first century. What is it now and here? And so in light of that, I urge you, I plead with you, take heed to the warnings of Scripture today. Take heed to what Solomon said, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. And her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. She is sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. And he said, the mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord, hated, will fall there. And then someone said this, not in Scripture, but it fits right here. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It'll especially cost you your soul if God doesn't break in and save you. The world will do that. Paul said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. John ended this epistle, 1 John, 
he ended this epistle with these words. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, keep yourself from setting your heart on anything but God and his word and realize, like Solomon said about the harlot, that she has hooks and you have flesh that is just sitting there ripe for being hooked. Don't love the world. I urge you, dear young people, Dear unconverted friends sitting here today, everyone sitting here, I urge you in John's words, keep yourselves from idols. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Instead, flee from them and flee to the only one who is able to save you from their condemning and destructive power. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would indeed take your word and write it upon our souls this day. Forgive us for loving the world. Help us not to love the world. Break the power of our lust of the flesh by the power of your Holy Spirit and deliver us from the grip of this world and from the grip of the evil one and bring people this day into the kingdom of the Son of your love and enable us all to walk that narrow way that leads to life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.